Good morning, everyone, and a happy new year to you all. Um, uh, if you're a visitor here with us today, uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, it's a kind of always a funny time of year in uh, Port Macquarie in this church in January because half our congregation are away in other places uh, around Sydney and the northwest and so on, and up in Queensland, and and half of Sydney in northwestern Queensland comes here. So. Uh, uh, I had no idea who'd be in church today, and uh, so it's good to, uh, to have you with us. Uh, a lot of our regular ministries are having a break at the moment, and uh, so Sunday school's not fully functional. Sunday school teachers need a break every so often, and we give it to them in January, but uh, Peter's running a little bit of a program out there for uh, the kids. Well, <clears throat> I grew up in the uh, beachside suburb of Sydney, uh, of Coogee in Sydney, and uh, for me, uh, during the summertime, after schools and on the weekend, it was uh, head down to the beach uh, for a swim and a body surf and so on. And so I was uh, pretty interested a few years ago when I, um, I uh, saw something in the paper that about that what was happening down in Sydney. Now, uh, what was happening was uh, that uh, there were people in down Sydney who were claiming that uh, Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, had, a, had appeared on the northern headland of Coogee Beach. Does anyone remember that? Anyone from Coogee? Um, yeah, yeah. A few people from the Coogee area. Now, I'm going to show you some photos of it in a moment. I just realised Peter's nicked off with the uh, remote control for the... Um, uh, Ben's nicked off it. Thanks, Ben. Good on you, mate. Okay, so I need to actually make some changes here. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Oh, okay. That's something else, isn't it? All right, let's just get out of there for a moment. Because uh, you've got these photos in your actual um, bulletins, but in full colour, it's probably a bit more interesting. Okay, is that up on the screen? No, nothing's on the screen. Nothing's working for me today. Why is that? There we go. Everyone see that? Okay, well, the, um, the media reported that, um, that scores of people had uh, hiked up to this particular cliff face uh, in order to uh, touch, to kiss and to pray uh, over this... Um, uh, this apparition of uh, Mother Mary and uh, they had transformed it into uh, something like a shrine. Uh, they said that people wept, other people sang, most people prayed uh, as the, uh, the sunlight uh, reflected and uh, created this uh, impression of, uh, of this lady who looked like Jesus' mother Mary. Hundreds of people claimed that they could see uh, the uh, veiled figure and they claimed that it was Our Lady. The uh, local parish priest in Coogee, he said that he thought it was an optical illusion but he said that if, uh, if people, and I quote, experience a sense of peace by being there, then he said, I see that as being a good thing, end of quote. Uh, the local residents didn't uh, get much peace out of it. They didn't experience that same peace and joy. They said that the traffic became absolutely gridlocked, that uh, car parks were choked 
as hundreds, even thousands of people over a period of time uh, converged on Coogee to see this apparition. Uh, believe it or not that since then, at least three university-level um, academic papers have been written on the Coogee apparition of Mother Mary. So there you have it. Does it look like Mary to you from where you're sitting? If you get a bit of a closer view, um, you see it a little bit uh, more clearly. You see it looks like a woman who's dressed in kind of Middle Eastern clothing. But if you uh, look at it closer without the fuzzy kind of aspect of it, what does it look like now? It's a fence. It is a fence with a shadow uh, reflecting from it. But uh, as I said, uh, hundreds of people uh, turned up, thousands of people even, uh, to the headland of Coogee Beach to see this uh, supposed miracle. Now, there's lots of places around the world where people have claimed that uh, figures of Jesus or Mary or some other uh, religious person have appeared. Uh, sometimes these stories are fairly easily dismissed, like in Coogee, where a few photos prove that it is an optical illusion. But in some places, uh, they have built shrines. Uh, there are places around the world where thousands, even hundreds, even millions of people over many, many years have made pilgrimages to those places, hoping to see an apparition, hoping to see or experience miracles, and uh, hoping to come closer to God, hoping that by being there, that somehow that they will be in a greater friendship, that they will be more in tune with God, their creator. Now, how do you respond to that sort of thing? Well, th there, there is one instance in the Bible where godly men from the past uh, did make an appearance to some of the disciples. And when we have a look at that particular incident, we see that it is profoundly different from some of these uh, modern reports. In Matthew chapter 17, uh, which you might want to have open in front of you, Matthew chapter 17, we have a, a, an absolutely amazing event which is described for us. Now, if you were one of those people who was here with us last Sunday, you might remember that uh, just immediately prior to this, that Jesus had told his disciples two remarkable things. Uh, the first remarkable thing that he told his disciples was that after Peter had made his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be killed and on the third day that he would be raised to life. That was the first remarkable thing. The second remarkable thing that Jesus had taught his disciples that some, was that some of the disciples would not die before they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And uh, that uh, when it says coming in his kingdom, it can mean coming in his royal majesty. Now, what did he mean by those things? Well, in Matthew chapter 17... Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James, who would soon actually lose his life because James was one of the very first Christian martyrs. We read about that in the book of Acts. So 
Peter, John and James, Jesus takes them up onto this mountain. Now, we, we don't know what mountain it was. Uh, the scholars kind of debate as to what mountain it might have been, but you know what scholars are like. You get three or four of them in a room, you get five or six opinions. Uh, and the, uh, the, the bottom line here is that Matthew doesn't tell us uh, what mountain that uh, was the, that they went on to because it wasn't important. The actual location is not the critical issue. What is important is what happened. And on that mountain, three astonishing things happened. Firstly, Jesus was transfigured. And uh, we read about that in uh, verse 2. Let me read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, the word transfigured is not a word which we use very much, do we? Um, I, I don't... I don't think I've ever used the word transfigured except when it's referring to this particular event. It's the only place I've ever seen it, the word in the New Testament. Um, what does it mean? Well, th this is one of the, those cases where the original Greek actually is helpful. The original Greek word that's translated here as transfigured is the word metamorphio. Now, guess what English word we get from metamorphio? Anyone want to have a, go, have a punt at that? Metamorphous or metamorphosized or whatever it is, you know, whatever happens to caterpillars, you know, caterpillars that they they metamorphize and they, you know, get wings and fly away as butterflies. That's that's metamorphous. And when it happens, uh, it, it means a radical change that occurs in in a person. Uh, when that radical change is a change in a person's character. The Bible translates the word as transformed. So, you know, when we're told that we are being transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, uh, here the change happens uh, to the physical appearance of Jesus or to his figure, and so Jesus was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes were as white as light. Now, what does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he's not just a man. It tells us that he is actually heavenly. Um, it's like, remember a, a bit further on in Matthew's Gospel, a few chapters later, when uh, after the death of Jesus, after the burial of Jesus, the, lay, the women go to the tomb and at the tomb, they, they find the tombs empty, but there is a, there's an angel there, a messenger from God, and uh, it's said that uh, his appearance shone like lightning, that his clothes were as white as snow. Uh, in the Bible, when someone appears like that, we're talking about heavenly uh, beings. And that's what's being said about Jesus here. In other words, this physical alteration of Jesus shows that he is much more than just a man. Now, that's the first thing. He was transfigured. Secondly, in verse 3 two great men of the Old Testament appeared with him. Let me read verse 3. It says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now that's extraordinary, isn't it? 
two figures from the Old Testament appear. Why is it significance? What's going on here? And why these particular men? Why is it that, um, why not King David? Uh, why not Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other great figures of the Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah do have certain similarities with one another. Um, for starters, both uh, Moses and Elijah went up onto the top of a mountaintop where they met with God um, on Mount Sinai. happened to both of them. Uh, both men uh, were men who suffered rejection at the hands of those to whom God had sent them. Both men uh, ended their lives in mysterious supernatural ways. Um, you might recall Elijah as he was walking along with, um, uh, with Elisha was actually drawn up to heaven in a whirlwind and that was the last that anyone saw of him. In, that's in 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, Moses ended his life uh, under mysterious circumstances. He, we, we are told he died alone with God and that God buried him in an unknown grave. That's in Deuteron Deuteronomy chapter 34. So they had that in common. But more than anything else, both of these men in different ways pointed to Jesus. I wonder if you might come with... We're going to do a bit of Bible flipping um, this, uh, this morning. Um, you might want to keep a bulletin or something rather stuck in Matthew 17 because we're going to be coming back to that fairly frequently. But will you come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18? Now, you find that on page 138 um, of your uh, Red Pew Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And uh, <clears throat> actually on the next page, 139, because I'm going to pick it up at verse 15. Moses is talking to uh, the people of Israel. And this is what he says to them in verse 15. <clears throat> he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the heaven of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. And by the way, that's what happens to you if you see God, you die. Some people say, you know, if only I could see God, then maybe I'd believe. Well, you don't want to see God, um, not in this way. You know, it's, it is an awesome thing. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I commanded him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. So there is a prediction or a prophecy of a future prophet, one drawn from amongst their brothers, one who like, is like Moses. And what is significant about Moses? What is significant about Moses is that he was their saviour, that Moses actually rescued, God through Moses rescued the people of Israel out of their slavery, their bondage in Egypt and brought them across towards the promised land. And so uh, the Jewish expectation was 
that uh, there would be this person in the, in the future, this prophet from God, this one who, who would be their saviour and who would bring into effect uh, God's kingdom. That is their great hope. Now, how does this connect with Jesus? Well, if you come with me now to the New Testament, to uh, Acts chapter 3, listen to the words of Peter. Uh, this is after the uh, resurrection and the ascension and the, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on, uh, on the people. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, when Peter is speaking to a crowd and he's preaching the gospel, he says these words, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. Now, do you see what Peter is saying? He's saying way back in Deuteronomy, Moses pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. He pointed forward to the coming of the one whom, if you don't listen to what he says, you will be cut off. You'll be cut off from the kingdom of God. That's Moses. What about Elijah? How did Elijah point forward to Jesus? I want you to, um, you think you could turn with me to the last two verses of the Old Testament. That should be fairly easy to find, shouldn't it? So you only got to go back a few pages from uh, Matthew to the very last two verses of the Old Testament, at least in terms of the order that the books are placed in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Let's see how the Old Testament ends. Verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, here we see that, um, uh, that uh, the, the prophet Malachi is saying that sometime in the future that the prophet Elijah would return and that he would turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children. And when that happens, when Elijah returns, the very next thing on God's agenda is the day of the Lord. That is the visitation of God to his people. Now, that happens in the person of Jesus. Elijah comes... And then comes Jesus. And so in that sense, Elijah points to the coming of God's king. 
What we see there is that God's choice of Moses and Elijah was very purposeful, as God always is, because they both point to Jesus. Now, the third astonishing thing which happened on the mountain was that there was some talking that was going on. All right? Back to uh, Matthew 17. Uh, in, uh, in verse 3, uh, Moses and Elijah were actually having a conversation with Jesus. be interesting to, uh, to know what they were talking about, wouldn't it? Um, uh, Matthew doesn't tell us, but actually Luke in his gospel does. In Luke chapter 9, tells us that they're actually having a conversation about what was going to happen when Jesus would depart from Jerusalem, when Jesus would, would ascend to heaven. Uh, that was what the conversation was about. In verse 4, Peter chips in. Have a look at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, how about Peter, hey? He said a few good things in Acts, didn't he? But back here in Matthew, I mean, he's the kind of person when, you know, there's a silence or an awkward moment and he doesn't know what to say, what does he do? He says something, right? You know people like that? I've been a bit like that myself sometimes. <laughs> That's Peter and you've got to love him. You've got to love him. So what does he say here? Well, forget the profound nature of what's happening um, Peter, and look, look carefully at the verse here, folks. This is what's going on in Peter's mind. Peter's thinking, it's just as well that we're here, me and my two mates, not so that they could witness what was going on, uh, not so that they could experience... It's just as well that we're here because we're kind of practical sort of guys. We're good with our hands. We can build things. And you don't want to be up here on the mountaintop in the middle of the day with the sun without any shelter. Uh, we'll, we could... You're very fortunate that we're up here with you. We can build some shelters for you. How about that? Right? I mean, uh, what was going on in his mind? You know, again, the scholars debate. They say some say it was the Feast of Tabernacles at that time. It would have been a good thing to do. I, we don't know. Peter just wanted to build some shade shelters for them. Um, Mark and Luke are interesting in their accounts of this uh, particular event because they actually add that Peter didn't have a clue what he was saying. <laughs> You've got to love Peter. But then someone else speaks. Verse 5. Verse 5. While Peter was still speaking, someone else interrupted. A bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Friends, in the Bible, when a cloud appears and a voice thunders out from that cloud, who do you think's speaking? This is God. This is God speaking. Peter had said, let's go and build three shelters. Uh, God's saying, nah, you've missed the point. You can't put... Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah. They, they are a foreshadow. They pointed to him, but this, 
is my son. Moses was a lawgiver. Elijah was a prophet. This is my son. Standing alongside the great prophet Elijah and the great lawgiver Moses is Jesus. But in the company of Jesus, these men pale into insignificance. Now, over the centuries, people have made all sorts of claims about who Jesus is. Mohammed claimed that Jesus was just a prophet. And uh, he claimed that, in fact, Jesus did not die on the cross, that someone else came and took his place at the last moment because you couldn't have a holy prophet dying on a cross like that. But Moses, Mohammed claimed that Jesus was just a prophet. And guess what? Billions of people believe him on that one. It's not what it's saying here, is it? Saying, this is my son. Um, In the churches, there 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 are church leaders who say that Jesus is the great moral lawgiver. And they're always pulling us back into the law and obeying the law and doing the right thing and, and so on, but in a gospelless kind of a way. They're dragging us back into Moses. They're saying that Jesus is just like Moses. Moses gave the Ten Commandments. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Same thing, just expanded a little bit and so on. But God says, no, he's not just a lawgiver. He is my son. He is greater than the law. He is greater than the prophets. In fact, when you think about, you know, what does the law do? Uh, Paul in Galatians says that the law actually teaching us about the righteousness and the holiness of God, it does so for the purpose of showing us how far we fall short of God's standards. The law actually teaches us that we're sinful people. The prophets tell us that there is a way out of the wrath that comes through being sinful. The prophets speak to us about the coming one who would be the saviour. And so Jesus is that one. Jesus is that son, the one. You see, the law and the prophets, they converge on the person of Jesus. They are fulfilled in Jesus so that when the cloud disappeared if you have a look at verses 6 to 8 the terrified disciples looked up and that's what happens to you if you hear from God you're terrified if you hear from him directly the uh, terrified disciples looked up and Moses and Elijah weren't there anymore there's one man standing alone Jesus for he alone would fulfil God's purposes of bringing men and women back into relationship with God, restoring us to our creator. Now, the transfiguration must have been an incredibly amazing experience for the disciples. And you can imagine that uh, as they're climbing down, you know, walking down the mountain, they would have been busting their guts to get down to the bottom of that mountain to go and tell everyone what they had just seen. Uh, Jesus only picked three of the disciples. They would have been busting their guts to go and tell the other, uh, however, nine disciples and other people as well. But Jesus won't let them do that. Have a look at verse 9. He tells them in verse 9 not to tell anyone 
about what had happened until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Part of the reason for that might have been because of some of the messianic expectations of a political leader that just Jesus didn't want that to, to grow. We don't really know what the reasons for that were. And I imagine that the disciples would have been puzzled by a few things occurring from that event. And one big one was this. Why would the one who has just appeared in the, his resplendent glory as God's king... Why would he now be talking about his death? And what's this about being raised to life again? What's it all about? And why can't they tell others what they saw? But there's another question which was on their mind as well. And this one, we do know very explicitly that this was their question because it's stated in verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now that's a fair question, isn't it? Malachi had just said that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And they'd just seen Elijah. And clearly Jesus had come first. Why would the teachers of the law say that? How does that all fit together? Well, in verses, verse 11, something happens which is almost as stunning as the transfiguration. I'll tell you what it is. In verse 11, Jesus actually agrees with the teachers of the law. That doesn't happen too often, does it, if you've been reading through Matthew's Gospel? Right? He says they've got it right. Elijah does come first. But guess what? He already came and they missed it. They failed to recognise him. And you think, well, what's he talking about here? He's talking about John the Baptist. Uh, if, if you turn back to chapter 11 for a moment, just a few pages back, chapter 11, page 688, this whole section about Jesus talking about John the Baptist and what they would people should have expected in John the Baptist, but in verse 13 of chapter 11 he says this he says for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John that is John stands in the lines of the prophets and they finish with John he's the last of the Old Testament characters and if you are willing to accept it he is the Elijah who was to come he who has ears let him hear. You see, it's not the actual man Elijah that uh, Malachi is referring to. It's the Elijah figure. It's the one who comes like Elijah, declaring the word of God as Elijah did. And there are some uh, great similarities between Jesus and John the Baptist, what they wore, what they ate and so on. John the Baptist is the Elijah figure. And you think to yourself, well, you know, why is this relevant? What's this got to do with things? Well, I've got to tell you this. The disciples had actually, used, uh, had actually asked an extremely helpful question here at this point because of this. The disciples, especially Peter, or at least Peter's the only one we know that had a real problem with it, but it had an explicit problem, that the disciples, especially Peter, didn't understand how Jesus 
uh, could on the one hand be God's glorious king and yet on the other hand that he should also die. That, that was a paradox to them. That didn't make sense. In chapter 16, when Jesus told them that he was going to die, Peter said, you're wrong. Peter took him aside and he rebuked him and said, you got it wrong. This is not going to happen to you. But at the transfiguration, the voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to what he's got to say. Why would the glorious, transfigured, divine king also die? Well, Jesus says, look at John the Baptist. He is the Elijah figure. He prepared the way for me. And what did they do to him? Well, check out verse 12. In verse 12, But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. They killed John the Baptist, who was the forerunner. They will kill me as well. Friends, the the transfiguration was a unique event. And at the time, understandably, the disciples didn't understand it. But after Jesus did rise from the dead, they certainly understood. I wonder if you might come with me to just one last Bible passage, last one of the day, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, it's, it's amazing to see the um, transformation of Peter, the metamorphosis of Peter, uh, as the Holy Spirit had um, filled him. That uh, there is, here is, Here's the guy who wanted to build three shelters on the mountain. But uh, have a look at what he says post the resurrection in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through to 18. Let me read it for you. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You see, for Peter, the transfiguration was the clear evidence that Jesus was no ordinary man. He wasn't just a lawgiver, he wasn't just a prophet. He is unique. He is superior to anybody else. But yet he died and rose again. For us, for you and me, for our sins. To understand the the transfiguration means to understand the gospel itself. That God could only save us from his wrath through the death of a perfect, sinless sacrifice. 
And that sacrifice would have to be his own son, his divine son. Compared to him, Moses and Elijah are just a shadow. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the king who died for us. So it makes you wonder then, what what do you make of the so-called modern day visions, these apparitions that people have talked about and you can go home and Google search apparitions and there'll be a whole stack of stuff that'll come up on your computer. What, What do you make of that? Well, one thing I've noticed is that when these supposed visions happen is that people end up worshipping the person whom they think has appeared or they worship the place, the venue, the location and they think that somehow that you're going to come into a better relationship with God if you go to that place and if you seek some sort of a miracle there. Um, At Coogee Beach, the Randwick Council, which kind of oversees the Coogee area, and the New South Wales government have been lobbied to um, erect a chapel uh, at at the park at that northern end of uh, Coogee Beach. Uh, One man who was involved in the lobbying of that for that uh, said this, he said, this is now holy ground. I've got to tell you, I've hung out there a lot of times. It's not particularly holy, <laughs> but for other reasons. In the paper just yesterday, uh, I, there was two stories in the Herald yesterday. Um, <clears throat> one was that someone had seen, reckoned that they'd seen the face of Jesus in a, in a piece of bread, a piece of toast. It was being auctioned on eBay, I think. And it's just, uh, there was another story about a man in a completely different article, <clears throat> uh, a man, an elderly man who uh, for most of his life has been worshipping a particular woman. Uh, and the reason is that in the 1930s that um, <clears throat> he had uh, uh, looked up into the sky one day when some nuns were... Uh, Uh, entering into his town and in the sky just the convergence of some clouds and some light and whatever had created what looked to him like a a cross and uh, what that has done is led him to worship Mary MacKillop um, along with others. Most commonly though people end up worshipping the other Mary, uh, our Saviour's mother Mary. Friends, the Transfiguration was a one-off event. And what's more than that, it was a true event. It teaches us that you and I can have friendship with God, not by going to a certain mountain or a certain place. Uh, And it's not by idolising Moses or Elijah or, or, or... or supposed images of other people, not even supposed images of Jesus himself. We don't know what Jesus looked like. And the Bible says you must not worship any images. But rather, the, the transfiguration should help us to trust 
in who Jesus is and what he's done. That is, it helps us to trust in the gospel of the death and the resurrection of the only Son of God. It teaches us that that, that the unique and the superior Son of God died and rose again. It's simple, isn't it? It's the simple, plain message of the gospel which we must keep on trusting and which we must proclaim to all who would seek to have a relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you in your great wisdom that uh, you revealed to the prophets that there was one to come, one who would uh, bring about your kingdom. Father, we thank you that in your great wisdom that that kingdom has come not by political might, uh, but rather by the humility and the sacrifice of your only son on the cross. We thank you that his death on the cross is the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. For he was your only son. He was sinless and yet he died for us. Father, we thank you that he has been raised from the dead. That through his resurrection that all who trust in him can look forward to eternal life gathered around your throne in heaven. Father, we pray that uh, you would protect us from uh, those things which would uh, distract us from Jesus, uh, that those things would, uh, which would present themselves as an alternative way of getting to know you apart from the gospel. Father, help us to proclaim this great message. We pray, pray that many more people would come to believe in the Jesus of the Bible, your son who died for us. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.